0: Welcome to The Book Collector. Printing and the Mind of Man was an exhibition, the first of its kind, held in London in 1963 to illustrate the impact of print on the evolution of Western civilization. It was an extraordinarily ambitious project and has become a byword whenever important and influential books are discussed. The man in charge was Percy Muir, the author of the following article. When I was first asked in January 1962, to take charge of the historical subcommittee of the Earl's Court Exhibition, Printing and the Mind of Man, I declined. The reason I gave was that I was too old and too indolent to embark on a major undertaking of this kind. The real reason was that long and repeated experience had shown that I am not a good committee man. I was finally overborne by the flattering insistence of Messrs. Carter, Francis and Morrison, the truth being, as Carter pointed out, that I knew very well that it was a thing I should greatly enjoy doing. Nevertheless, I embarked on the task apprehensively. It was true that, on the spur of the moment, I had engaged in a trial run of the same sort of thing for the Fitzwilliam exhibition in 1940, but on that occasion, Graham Pollard and I had chosen the milestone exhibits ourselves from what was immediately on hand, and for most of them, all I had to do was to boil down the entries I had already made for the Ian Fleming collection, for which a printed catalogue was foreseen, although it never got off the ground. The Earl's Court exhibition, it had not yet been given a name, was a very different undertaking. It meant, first, constructing a canon of the eligible material, This meant pinpointing the key books in the entire range of Western thought and discovery. No mean job in itself. Secondly, the significance of each entry would have to be indicated within a maximum of 80 to 100 words. An even more formidable prospect was the intention eventually to extend the descriptions to the length at which they were to appear in the volume now being printed. Thirdly, When the entries had been chosen, copies of the books themselves had to be found in locations where they could be borrowed. Fourthly, a team had to be recruited, able and willing to cooperate in all these different phases of the undertaking. It is the purpose of these notes to sketch the history of how the job was done. First, the recruiting of the team. Nicholas Barker, H. A. Feisenberger, Howard Nixon and S.H. Steinberg. I can pay no greater tribute to them than that they convinced me that committee work, far from being the penance I had previously founded, can be a most rewarding and enjoyable experience. We were a group of hard-working, hard-thinking and, above all, hard-hitting enthusiasts, united in the supreme an overriding determination to make the finished work as near perfection as lay within our power. I was first among equals, only in so far that I sat at the head of the table at meetings and did the donkey work of circularization. The first of the innumerable circulars was a cockshy list of subjects and titles for consideration by the team. This was soon cut to pieces and several times reconstructed with the result that a general method of procedure and division of labour were arrived at. Each of us could claim some degree of expertise in one or other of the fields with which we were concerned and entries were grouped accordingly. A fair proportion of the candidates for inclusion was obvious to all of us. As to the remainder It became the duty of each specialist to write entries that justified inclusion in the eyes of his lay colleagues. Quite frequently, the specialist himself acknowledged that he'd been unable to do so, and this usually meant that the item in question was omitted. Not always, however, for sometimes another member of the team felt sufficiently convinced of the worthiness of a rejected book to try his own hand at it. Even then, it was not always accepted. As the entries slowly came to hand, they were duplicated and circularized to the team and to some members of the supervisory committee. The historical subcommittee met at least once a month under the hospitable roof of the Monotype Corporation to discuss the entries so far received and to supplement the lists of suggested books. An inevitable feature of the lists, the entries and the discussions was the frequent emergence of large-sized bees from everybody's bonnet, but a general alertness and a cheerful submission to criticism dealt with all such problems swiftly and conclusively. We compiled 16 successive lists in all, and it is both chastening and enlivening to compare them and to see one series of entries being allowed to fall by the wayside and others being welcomed into the fold. A watchful eye was kept on our progress by the Supervisory Committee, notably by John Carter and Stanley Morrison. In Morrison's case, the eye was frequently stern and occasionally baleful. We were to be allowed no literature or music as such, these being considered as recreational pursuits. The musical entries, therefore, were confined to theoretical works that affected the minds of musicians. Literature proved more obstinate. Virgil and Homer had been allowed to pass without comment, but the members of the subcommittee were unanimous and emphatic that this made it impossible to admit Dante, Shakespeare and Goethe, for example. Our adopted criterion here, therefore, was to include one representative literary example from each of the great Western cultures – subject to an imposed qualification that its influence on the mind of man must be demonstrated. We were, in the final resort, not ungrateful for this restriction, because it would have been impossible in the space at our disposal to have included the number of literary entries that would otherwise have clamoured for inclusion. We were bidden at one point to produce a list of our entries analysed under subjects, This was a very fruitful suggestion that enabled us to correct a lack of balance due to our individually preponderating enthusiasms. To further as close a liaison as possible between the technical and the historical phases of the exhibition, we also produced a list of exhibits arranged chronologically. We had hitherto worked on an alphabetical list of authors, which was convenient for ready reference, Although we were aware that the display would almost inevitably be chronological, unfortunately, in the nature of things, the technical team were very much more limited than we were by the unavailability of material, and the desired liaison was eventually somewhat limited. In view of the scarcity of material at their disposal, it should be said that the technical side was almost miraculously extensive. By the generous offer of Sir Frank Francis to permit the assembling. Mounting, dismounting and redistribution of the exhibits by the staff of the British Museum, we were enabled to forestall a justified reluctance to lend in some quarters, based on unfortunate past experience. And it is not too much to say that the exhibition would not have come to fruition but for this general cooperation, I should like in this connection to pay a very special tribute to Mr Howard Nixon who took this onerous task upon himself and to record that of the 450 or more books exhibited only one suffered mishap and that one demonstrably after it had arrived back in its country of origin. Coming as they did from all over Europe and the United States and by every conceivable variety of transport From airmail to personal delivery, they did not arrive in any ordered sequence. Howard Nixon checked their arrival, arranged them in storage in the exact order of their appearance in the catalogue, and delivered them in that order in due course to Earl's Court in batches of such a size that their mounting and sealing in the showcases could be completed in a single session. He and I were at opposite ends of the telephone he at the museum, I at Earl's Court. He would telephone me when the security van left the museum with a batch of treasures and I would call him back when the van had been brought up to the exhibition gallery in the massive lift and driven out onto the exhibition floor so that the strong-armed man could release himself from his armed watch over the books inside the van. Glaziers were standing by, and, as each batch was mounted by George Bunt into the cases reserved for them, the heavy plate glass windows were sealed into place to be jealously watched over day and night by relays of corps guards. The whole process was repeated in reverse when the exhibition was dismounted. One of the batches from the museum included the first printing of the American Declaration of Independence, In handing it over to me, the security officer asked me to check it over at once and in detail because, I quote, Mr Nixon says if this goes astray he'll lose his job and I'll lose mine. Returning from this anticipatory diversion to the making of lists, we had fined down our eventual choice almost without reference to the possibility of finding the books although this lurked constantly in the back of our minds with a major apprehension due to the knowledge that the resources of the British Museum and the Rylands Library were unavailable. This eventually caused us more embarrassment than we had bargained for when some statutory libraries abroad pointedly declined to lend books known to be in the British Museum. The knowledge and ingenuity of the subcommittee were fully extended in locating the books, and its chairman's patience and persistence were sometimes severely tried by resistance to and occasional ignoring of all blandishments lavished on potential lenders. In the end, only one exhibit completely eluded our search, although occasional subterfuge was needed, we tried, wherever possible, to exhibit copies of the books with special associations. Notable successes were the Assertio Septem Sacramentorum 1521 of Henry VIII, lent by Her Majesty the Queen, Nicholas de Couza's own copy of his collected works 1514, and the publisher's own files of the original Baedeker, Brockhaus and the Encyclopedia Britannica. There were many others. In Europe, We were largely indebted to the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek and to the Bibliothek Nationale. But a word must be said of the tireless efforts of signor Filippo Donini, cultural attaché and director of the Italian Institute, in the almost insuperable task of locating and producing great treasures from Italian sources. Dr Karl Baidicker took a strong personal interest in the exhibition and not only lent the precious, sole-surviving copy of the first Baidika, but used his powerful influence to chivy reluctant German institutions into lending indispensable volumes. Many are the tributes that ought to be paid, but which lack of space forbids. There is one, however, who cannot be omitted, although the extent of our debt to him is immeasurable. John Lansdell designed the showcases and the entire layout of the exhibition. Such previous experience as I had had with architects and designers had been rather of the order, that's my design and you'll take it and like it. For some time this kept us rather at a distance until, with previous unfortunate experiences in mind, I made the point rather forcibly that exhibition cases for books called for very special provisions in the control of ventilation and heat. John Lansdell at once suggested a conference on the point into which Howard Nixon was impressed. A specimen case was built to our specification and left for three weeks with the lighting switched on and a maximum and minimum thermometer and a humidity gauge inside. It passed all tests with flying colours and combined a maximum of visibility with a handsome appearance. Elaborate scale drawings were provided for all the showcases and the subcommittee wrestled vainly with the problem of translating the superficial area available into terms of book content. Severally and jointly we made our calculation only to arrive at a different conclusion every time. Finally, I put the problem up to Lansdell who immediately told me we had approached it from the wrong end. We must tell him how many books we wished to exhibit and their approximate sizes, and it would be his job to make space available for them. While this was a great comfort on the one hand, on the other hand it brought the problem home to roost. It developed into the necessity of providing virtually a template for each book before we had seen any one of them. This daunting obligation was assumed by Dr H. A. Feisenberger, a willing horse if ever there was one. Countless other technical details of the exhibition were due to his enthusiastic labour in addition to his major share in the compilation of our lists and cataloguing and locating books. John Lansdell quite clearly regarded the ardour and earnestness of our approach as evidence of harmless mania. He knew nothing of rare books, but greeted our problem as a challenge which he met supremely well, It was agreed by all who saw the exhibition that books had never been better displayed. The team was highly gratified by the evidence of the success of their efforts as shown by the large and appreciative audience at the exhibition. But when it closed, the sequel faced us. Soon after the first list of books and subjects was circulated in February 1962, a specimen entry was prepared in two forms. A in condensed form for the exhibition catalogue, and B, at full length for the book that was to follow and is now approaching publication. The team's reception of B varied from reluctant doubt to a flat declaration that this was a task that we should never find the time to complete. Nevertheless, when the time came, all re-enlisted without a murmur the result is to be seen in the truly splendid volume that has emerged from their labours. That volume will, I hope and believe, speak for itself, but there is one important feature of its compilation that ought not to go unrecorded. I have indicated that the extension of the exhibition catalogue into its present elaborated form was a change of kind rather than of degree.' In writing the longer entries, contributors were called upon to make a new approach. The temptation to indulge in superlatives was irresistible. Enthusiasm tended to produce emphases that could be conflicting. Was Lawrence or J.J. Thompson the discoverer of the electron theory? Just how far did Vico anticipate Spengler and Toynbee? How could the respective claims made by the writers of the Littleton, Bracton, Cook and Blackston entries be reconciled? As chairman of the committee and co-editor of the book, this might be thought to be within my province. But on the one hand, I had lived too long, too close to the individual entries to assume the necessary detachment, and I had also written a hundred or more of the entries myself. My co-editor nobly assumed this burdensome task and the broad division of labour between us has been that while I selected and provided the trees, John Carter has done the landscape gardening. Neither of us is a particularly easy person to get on with and the exasperations of our mutual labours were continually frustrating. Nevertheless, our long friendship has emerged unscathed We soon found, however, that the sequel involved much more than just finding the time to write longer entries. What had been needed for the catalogue entries was a knowledge of the significance of the item and a knack of expressing that significance in a few words. It would suffice at a pinch, for example, to say that Röntgen's paper announced the discovery of X-rays. To set the discovery in its historical background, to indicate in some detail its revolutionary effects in science and industry and to relate it to other relevant entries, demands accuracy, patience and leisure in one or the other or all of which we felt ourselves lacking. The circulation of every long entry to every member of the team had proved so fruitful in preparing the catalogue that it was continued with the longer entries. Generally speaking, however, this was the means of ensuring a layman's approach to specialised entries. What was needed for the book was quite different, namely, complete assurance that each entry would satisfy a specialist. It was agreed by all concerned that the only way to accomplish this was to enlist a team of outside experts who would review each entry critically and suggest emendations when necessary. The sequel amply justified this procedure. The emendations by the experts varied all the way from correcting minor points of emphasis to the entire rewriting of some entries. To Professor A. Rupert Hall and Dr. G. J. Whitrow, Imperial College, Professor Dennis Hay, Edinburgh University, Mr. D. M. Knight, Durham University, and Dr. F. NL Pointer, director of the Welcome Historical Medical Museum, we owe deep gratitude on this score. Printing and the Mind of Man, or PMM as it's commonly referred to by bibliophiles the world over, was an extraordinary subject to be a hit in the grubby post-war London of 1963. But hit it undoubtedly was. No such comprehensive and careful conspectus of the impact of printing on the mind of the Western man had ever before been attempted. 424 printed works were exhibited covering all the major innovations of Western man. 51 were lent by King's College, Cambridge, and 44 from the collection of our founder, Ian Fleming. A short article, together with the insurance values of some of Fleming's books, was published in our Ian Fleming issue of Spring 2017, which is available online to subscribers and in print form to all at £20 a copy.